Hi, my name is Nikki. My name is Charlie. And you're listening to Bed Crime Stories, a weekly true crime podcast where we pour ourselves a drink and take turns telling each other the stories that keep us up at night. How are you, everybody? Living the 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 COVID dream. Living the COVID dream. Yes, we are probably about what a year into quarantine. Yeah, it's insane. And here we still are. So yeah, good times, good times. I mean, I guess we're better off than most other states, though. There's oh, absolutely. Are- this is true. This is true. Regardless of what I thought we were going to be at this stage in the game. So shockingly, yes, Florida's, I guess, con- all things considered. I mean, I'm still staying at home. Oh, hard same, hard same. Well, honestly, any excuse I have to not leave my house has actually been working out pretty nice for me. I'm not going to lie to you. not going to lie to you. Um, all right. Well, Nikki, would you like to kick things off with our true crime headlines? Yes. Okay. So this week, um, so a couple weeks ago we did about the dog hair or mm-hmm. the pet the pet fur. So one of my stories was posted March 1st, 2021, and this was posted on Oxygen, and it says dog hair on duct tape used to bind Florida murder victim lands killer behind bars. Yay. Yeah. It's like a full circle from the ep- a couple episodes ago. Right? Fun. So I guess on there's going to be a TV show called One Deadly Mistake airing Saturdays, 7 Central on Oxygen. And they're going to go over that that case. That's fun. Right? I, like I was it. like, when I saw that, I was like, that goes back around. <laughs> love a good full circle I moment. I love full circle moments. Yes. So, yeah, um, best friend's dog there, you know. That's it. Doggies get in it. Wait. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then my second story is from people.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was posted March 3rd, 2021. And then it says, oh, uh, Ohio grandmother, 88, killed by stray bullet while planning relative's funeral. Oh, my God. Yeah. But it says 89 right here underneath the 88. So it says Ruth Lewis, 89, was sitting in her wheelchair when someone fired around six shots into the home around 730 on Sunday. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's awful. So it doesn't really say what had happened. Right. Just that there were shots fired into her house. Dang. Very sad. That's very sad. So, what's her name? The- Ethel? Oh. Did you say Ethel? No, let me look. Hold I don't on. I don't. Ethel. It's Ruth. Ruth. Ruth Lewis. It's, okay. Ruth Ethel. Ethel. I mean, that, I mean, that's a cute elderly name. Yes. That's a cute grandma name. Take but it. yeah, those are my true crime headlines for the oh, week. Well, thanks, Nikki. Sorry. One was a uh, nice. I, I guess I should have done those reverse. Should have done the opposite Should have done, done the bummer one first. Okay. Should have, would have, could have. But anyways, Charlie. But you didn't. So whatever. Um, yeah. So I. <laughs> <laughs> so talking about full circle moment. So thank yeah. you for bringing that up. This is uh, it's a good segue for me. So last episode, uh, Nikki's episode last week, um, I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we we're talking about recommendations. Things oh, yes. that We've been watching documentaries, blah, 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 blah. And I had mentioned that while I was away for business and by myself in the hotel room, I was deep diving on a lot of true crime docs and mentioned the BTK stories that I had yes. been paying attention to. And I had made mention in the episode, maybe I'll do the BTK in a couple of weeks. Well, Didn't have to wait a couple of weeks. We are here. I am going to be telling the story tonight of Dennis Rader, the BTK serial killer. I'm very excited because I know some things about him, but I don't know 
a lot about him. I'm very excited because I have a lot to tell you about him. So, Yay, I'm so you are excited. going to be fully educated on all things BTK by the time uh, we are done this evening. So, yay. Um, I have three primary sources. My first was just kind of informational, and that's from Murderpedia.com. My second source that I got a lot of information from was the 2020 episode. It was season 41, episode 22, titled My Father BTK, and that's available on ABC. You can get it either on the ABC app or on Hulu. And then I also found this website that is amazing chock full of information about BTK, specifically about the victims. And that is survivingbtk.weebly.com. And that's W-E-E-B-L-Y. And the only reason why I know that that's spelled correctly is because at first I thought it was weekly. So I was like, surviving BTK weekly. And then I realized it wasn't weekly. And then I corrected it. So could you imagine that man coming after you weekly? Oh my God. No, thank you. Okay. So let's go ahead and jump in. So Dennis Rader was born on March 9th, 1945 in Pittsburgh, Kansas, and he grew up in Wichita, Kansas. He was the oldest of four boys. By all accounts, Dennis Rader had a pretty normal and happy upbringing. Nothing that would suggest that he was subject to a childhood of abuse or trauma, any of those traditional triggers that we hear a lot about with most serial killers, right? Falling on the head. Correct. Head trauma, uh, abusive parents in and out of jail, blah, 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 all that stuff, right? However, according to several reports, including his own confessions, as a child, he did torture animals, which is one of the warning signs in the McDonald triad, which as true crime fans we know is animal torture, bedwetting, and setting fires or a fascination with fire. That's the one that makes me the angriest. The fire or the animal torture? The animal torture. Okay, I figured. I I mean, the the wait, the the fire setting? Is that what you were saying? Yeah, I don't know. Well, that was the last thing I said. That's kind of traumatizing, too. I mean, none of it's good. Depending on what you're catching on fire. None of it's good. Um, He also had a fetish for women's underwear, and he would later steal the underpants from his victims and wear them himself. Dennis attended Kansas Wesleyan University for one year until he left to serve in the U.S. Air Force. Um, He did eventually go back to school and finish his degree, but at this time he was only there for a year and then went into the military. Um, Dennis met his wife, Paula, in the fall of 1970. They wound up going to the same church together. He had just gotten out of the Air Force, returned to the area, and at this point moved and lived in Park City, Kansas, which was a suburb of Wichita. It's about uh, seven miles north of Wichita. So, like I said, when he got out of the Air Force, he returned to the area, moved to Park City, and that's when he began dating Paula. And then they wound up getting married only nine months later. So May of 1971, he's already married. Now, unbeknownst to Paula, Dennis was already beginning to fantasize about harming other people. He's already stalking people acting like a good old peeping peeping Tom, looking into their houses, breaking into their houses. So Dennis's double life had already begun. From 1972 to 1973, Dennis worked as an assembler for the Coleman Company, a camping gear firm based out of Wichita. And actually, interestingly enough, two of his early victims also worked for the Coleman Company. And he actually brings it up when he's talking at his uh, sentencing hearing later on. Did he know them? He did. I mean, he. I guess he knew of them. Yeah. Ooh. 
Um, he then worked for a short time for Cessna in 1973, which uh, is the airline manufacturer. Uh, but from November 1974 until his being fired in July 1988, Dennis worked at the Wichita office of ADT Security Services. And that's kind of his most famous and what he's known for, the job that he had, was working for ADT. Which and, was a security system. Correct. He held several, several positions, including installation manager. And it's believed that this is how he learned to defeat home security systems. This is how he learned which houses were easier to break into than others. Um, so... Like I said, famously so, he worked for ADT. Um, after he got fired from ADT, he worked as a field operations supervisor uh, prior to the 1990 federal census. And once that was complete, he was, t- he was hired to be the supervisor of compliance in Park City. So what the supervisor of compliance department is, it's a two-employee department in the government that is not only in charge of animal control, but is also in charge of um, housing permits and zoning and um, coding enforcements and all that stuff, right? So in this position, he was really getting a big thrill out of the fact that he had all of this power to kind of lord over his neighbors. And one neighbor actually claimed a formal complaint against him that he euthanized her dog for no reason. Oh my God, I would kill yeah someone he's pretty awful so that's just kind of a little sorry no i wouldn't i wouldn't kill anyone but uh, i mean well i mean i don't want to see her and say that i'm like kill someone there will be blood um so that's just kind of a little background on dennis raider and his public persona so this is the face that he showed the world this is family man dennis raider that everybody in wichita knew right but let's kind of start to take a look at the private and more sinister side of dennis raider i like your little hand movement the there. sinister side i am twirling my invisible mustache um so joseph and julie otero lived in a modest corner home with their five children and they had recently relocated to wichita kansas Dennis had been driving around the neighborhood um, and he was actually taking his wife Paula to work and he spots Julie Otero and one of her young daughters walking on the side of the road, taking a walk. And he sees her and says, this is it. This is going to be my first target. So on January 15th, 1974, in the Otero house, the older of the three Otero children were off at school and the two youngest children were home with Mr. and Mrs. Otero. So Joseph and Julie. Dennis approached the Otero home, cut the phone line and entered the house. Dennis assumed that Julie and the youngest daughter, Josephine, who goes by Josie, would be home alone and was surprised by the presence of Joseph Sr. and Joseph Jr. or little Joey. So he pulls a gun on the family and first uh, and takes the Mr. and Mrs. Otero into the bedroom. He ties up Mrs. Otero and begins to strangle Mr. Otero in the bedroom when um, and this is kind of where the last that we know so far when the older children return from school that day they discover their parents bodies so charlie otero who is the oldest of the children runs to a neighbor's house calls the police and it was the police that located joey and josie's bodies so joey was in another bedroom of the house he had been strangled josephine was in the basement she was bound and she was hung just off the floor from a pipe so 
Raider's experience uh, here at the Otero house, he experiences sexual arousal from his actions and he winds up pleasuring himself and leaving semen on the ground nearby where Josephine's body was in the basement. So when the cops get there, they start collecting evidence and they also collect the semen from that was left at the scene. Now, obviously we know from 1974 that there was no DNA. There was no DNA testing. There was no way for them to really test to see who this was other than a blood type right at this point. Yeah. But the police were like incredibly thorough and they made sure that they took pictures of everything, Man. cataloged everything. Yeah, it's very, it was actually very, very impressive I that they were it. able to collect all of the, all the stuff that they did, not knowing how important it was going to be in the future. So the murders of the Otero family of Julie Joseph, Joey, and Josie shook Wichita because they had never seen a violent murder like this ever before. It wasn't until decades later at Dennis's plea hearing that the surviving children of the Oteros learned how their parents and siblings actually died. And according to Raider himself, Julie's last words before he took her life were, may God forgive you for that. Charlie Otero states in the 2020 episode that he was so moved that his mother was so beautiful and gracious in the final moments of her life. Um, On April 4th, 1974, so just a couple of months after the Otero murders, Dennis kills a college student named Catherine Bright. Dennis had seen her before entering her home and like with Mrs. Otero decides, yep, that's it. That's going to be my next target. So the next day he breaks into her home from the porch door and hides in her bedroom. Now around two o'clock in the afternoon, she gets back home. But again, by surprise, she's not alone. So she arrives home and she has her 19-year-old brother, Kevin, with her. Dennis comes out of the room, um, comes at them with the gun. He tells him that he's a wanted criminal and he needs a car, he needs food, and he needs money because he's on the lam and he's on his way to New York. So he forces the two into the bedroom and he tells Kevin to tie his sister's hands and feet. Then he takes Kevin into the other room and tries to tie him up as well. But Kevin gets into a fight with Dennis and actually almost wrestles the gun away from him. But unfortunately, Dennis was able to get a hold of the gun and he winds up shooting Kevin in the head twice. Jesus. Yeah. After that, he went back into the room where Catherine was bound. Um, She also put up a fight against Dennis as he tried to strangle her. um, And he realized that strangling her was not going to work. So he started stabbing her and he stabbed her multiple times in the abdomen. While this was happening, Kevin was actually able to escape. Yeah, I know. He uh, he ran a few blocks in the head twice. Twice. Yep. Mm hmm. He ran a few blocks. He got to his car. He drove off in search of help. Um, But sadly, even after multiple emergency surgeries and a blood transfusion, Catherine Bright did die. She was only 21 years old. Uh, But Kevin, though he was in critical condition for a time, he did survive. Um, On October 22nd, 1974, a local newspaper gets a phone call from a person claiming to be responsible for the Otero murders, and he instructs the reporter to look at the Wichita Public Library and to find a specific book in the engineering section of the library. So police go, they find the book, and in this book is a letter that describes the Otero murders in detail. Details that would only be known to the killer themselves. Imagine being that cocky. Oh, it gets so like. much worse. Yeah, it gets so, so much worse. Um, this man is, the gall of this man is just, it's unbelievable. 
unmatched, in my opinion. Um, Ted Bundy didn't even have cojones as big as Dennis Rader, in my personal opinion. Um, at this point, the police had actually arrested three men as possible su- uh, suspects in the crime. But Dennis did not like that. He didn't like the idea of anybody else getting all the glory. And he um, he wanted to make sure that not only did police know that he did it, but that he was the only one who did it. He was alone. He did this himself. I was the one who killed all four of the Oteros. So in the letter, he also suggested the nickname BTK, which stands for Bind, Torture, and Kill. Lovely man. On March 17th, 1977, St. Patrick's Day, which is completely irrelevant, but Hmm. interesting fact. Um, On March 17th, 1977, Dennis struck again after about three years of silence. He once again spotted his soon-to-be victim in a neighborhood that he was passing through. Uh, Dennis knocks on the door of his victim and a young boy named Steve answers the door. Yes. So he tells Steve that he is a detective. And of course that gains, uh, the boy's trust and he lets him get in the house with no fright, with no fight. Um, not only is Steve, there's actually also three other children in the house. So Dennis comes in, he turns off the TV, he closes the blinds. And as he's doing this, the kid's mom, Shirley Vian comes out of one of the rooms and is completely shocked that there's this strange man standing in her living room. So at gunpoint, he takes the kids, he orders them to go into the bathroom and he locks them inside the bathroom. He then tells Shirley that he planned to have his way with her. Um, he was able to lead her to believe that he wasn't going to rape her and calm and calmed her down by giving her a glass of water. And he sat with her and smoked a cigarette with her to calm her nerves. Does he wear a mask? No. No. So they see his face. Absolutely do. While the children were screaming in the bathroom, Dennis tied their mother up and strangled her to death by putting a cord around her neck. He also left semen at the scene um, in her underpants, which were found next to her body. By, yes, he's depraved. So by December of 1977, Dennis becomes obsessed with stalking a 25-year-old named Nancy Fox. So on December 8th, he cut the phone line and broke into her duplex from the back door. He waited in her home for her to get back from her job at the jewelry store. So since she lived alone, he knew that he was going to have no trouble surprising her in the kitchen at gunpoint, which he did. He told her that he had a sexual issue, you think, and that to get rid of that issue, he had to tie her up and rape her. He allowed her to partially disrobe herself in the bathroom and then ordered her to go into the bedroom. He tied her up, undressed himself and began to strangle her. As he strangled her, he tells her his name, who he was, that he's BTK, the murders that he committed in the past. And then killed her. Like, talk about brazen, right? Um, Her body was found later in her home with semen on the nightgown that was next to her. The following day, on his way to work to ADT, he calls the police and says, yes, you will find a homicide at 843 South Pershing. Her name is Nancy Fox. And then leaves the receiver at the phone booth dangling off the hook. Oh, okay. Sorry, this was in this was what the eighties. So then, yeah, seventies, seventies, yeah. phone booths. Yes, those I was were thinking. I was like, yeah, no, no cellular devices. Cellular devices were later. Yes. So, police rush to the house at eight forty three South Pershing, as told, and they do indeed find Nancy's body strangled to death. The police try to replay the recording of the voice who called them, but they were never able to find anybody to come forward and say that they knew the voice. So by early 1978, Dennis sends a sarcastic poem called Shirley Locks to the Wichita Eagle newspaper. 
And then after the poem, he also sends a serious letter in which BTK was taking responsibility for the past seven homicides. It was written very similar to the same way that the letter was found back in 1974 in that book. He also started to complain in the letter. He was pissed because he was relatively unknown and that the other serial killers of the time were getting way too much media attention and nobody knew who he was. And he actually asked in the letter, how many do I have to kill to get a name in the paper or some national attention? So like he's seeing the Ted Bundy's being talked about on the news. And oh my God, this is like next week's story, kind of. And like he's just he's they're doing it for the like the he's doing it for the glory the attention. Yeah. yeah. So he writes in the letter about something he calls Factor X, which he claims is this demon that lives inside of him that makes him commit these awful crimes. Okay. No, it's just, it's it's Dennis Rader. You're the demon. You're just a POS. Yeah. Um, the next letter that was found, uh, he actually was mocking the murder of Nancy Fox, and he entitled the letter, Oh Death to Nancy. At this time in 1978, after seven murders, the police chief, Richard Lemunyan, finally announces that there is indeed a serial killer in Wichita and that citizens should be on high alert. But Dennis takes a break and he goes dormant because in the preceding years, he had two kids with his wife, a son and a daughter. And at this point, his son is now old enough. So he's starting to become more involved in his son's life. And then his daughter's life, Dennis actually becomes a boy scout leader and is the leader of his son's boy scout troop. She yeah. always blew my mind. Yes. In 19 19- some beef jerky sticks. <laughs> you want some trail mix? Um, In 1985, over seven years after his last attack, Dennis was 40 years old and planning to kill again. His next victim was 53-year-old Maureen Hedge, who was a widow that lived on the same block as the Raider family for over 30 years in Park City. On April 27th, 1985, Dennis was at Boy Scout camp uh, with his son on an overnight outing and tells the other leaders that he had a headache and needed to leave to go get medication. So he leaves and he goes to a nearby bowling alley and buys a beer. So he sits down, he buys this beer. He like swishes the beer in his mouth and spills a little on his shirt. So that way he would smell like he had been drinking, calls a cab, pretends that he's drunk and tells the driver to take him to his block in Park City because he didn't want his car at Marine's home because he lived in the neighborhood. He knew that if somebody saw his car, they'd be able to identify that it was him. So once he got to Marine's home, he saw that her car was home and he assumed that she was there. So he, of course, as per usual, cuts the phone line, quietly opens the back door and he sneaks in. But he realizes that nobody was home. So he waits in her bedroom until he sees a car pull into the driveway. Marine came home. She actually had a, a gentleman friend with her. Yes. And um, he winds up leaving. So the, she entertains her gentleman friend. I'm not saying that it was like, you know, sexual nature. She has a friend over and he happened to be a gentleman. Um, he winds up leaving. Maureen is there. She gets ready. She goes to bed. And about one o'clock in the morning when she is asleep, Dennis comes out of the bedroom closet, turns on the bathroom light, jumps on Maureen in bed and begins to choke her until she dies. See, my boyfriend wants to make fun of me because I check all the doors at night and I check the like our closet and stuff. But it's you like never know. There's shit. Yeah. Tell him a little story about a man named Dennis Rader. Um, so this is where his M.O. starts to deviate from his normal BTK routine. So once she dies, he actually takes her body from the home. He puts her in the trunk of her own car 
takes her in her car, drives her body to his church. And because he was acting as the congregational president of the Christ Lutheran Church, he had keys to the building. What the fuck? Oh, dude. Yes. (laughs) I know. I'm on page eight. Okay. It gets so much worse. So everyone's face is like. I'm telling you, you guys have no idea. No, I've never looked into BTK. That's why I'm like. Insanity. It's insanity. So he had keys to the building. So he unlocks the church, covers the window so nobody could see in, and brings Maureen's body down into the church basement. He starts taking photos of her body in different poses. He puts her in clothes that are belonging to his previous victims that he stole from their houses and takes all these pictures of her, then puts her back in the trunk of her car, drives her back. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Dumps her in a ditch along a dirt road, brings her car to another part of town and then goes back to the Boy Scout camp. Wait, Seriously. so did he drop, like, then how did he get from her car to his car? Did he drop it, like, close to his car? Then? I'm assuming so. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm assuming so. Yeah, yeah, Now, according fuck? to Dennis Rader's daughter, Carrie, she actually remembers the night that Marine went missing. She was only six years old, and she remembers it clearly because there was a thunderstorm happening in in the city. Yeah. And because he was out of the house with her brother, she got scared and she ran into her parents' bedroom and climbed into bed with her mom. And she's like, I know that he wasn't home because I never would have gotten to bed if he was home. She was like, I would have felt safe knowing he was home. So I would have been in bed. But she goes, I think remember even at six years old, exactly what night it was. And she also remembers that when Maureen's body was found, that, that, she remembers her because she remembers her from the neighborhood. And she also recalls knowing even at six years old that Maureen had been strangled. This causes her a lot of issues. She starts to have nightmares and she's telling her parents like this, a man's going to come and get me. And her parents are reassuring her. Nobody's going to come and get you. Little does her mom know. And I guess Dennis completely knows the man is not going to come and get you because he's your father. The call is coming from inside the house. (laughs) So, um, yeah. And that's not to say anything bad about Carrie. I actually really love her. Watching the 2020 episode with her, it's just, it Well, I mean, she's also like six. So it's like. She's also six. Yeah, exactly. Um, So um, we now get to September 16th, 1986. It is around 10 a.m. Dennis Rader dresses himself up as a telephone repairman and he knocks on the door of Vicki Weggerly. She lets him into her home, but instead of fixing her phone, he cuts the phone line and he tells her that he is going to tie her up. So he forces her into the bedroom at gunpoint. She gave him a fight, and he when he tried to tie her up, he, she, like, beat the crap out of his face. She was scratching him, cutting him, all that stuff. So he winds up just choking her to death with a rope. He takes a couple of quick photos and gets the hell out of Dodge, basically. But as he leaves, he steals the Weggerly's car. So he's driving away. Bill Weggerly, Vicky's husband, starts he- is heading home, and he sees his car driving past him in the opposite direction on his way home. He's probably looking in the car, like being what like- the fuck, right? Exactly. But he was un- unable to identify the person who was driving it. So when he gets home, he finds their twelve, their two year old child unharmed in the living room, all by themselves and then goes into the bedroom and finds Vicky unresponsive. She dies later of her injuries in the hospital. He, uh, in the meantime, Dennis Rader is parking the Weggerly's car a few blocks away and disposing of all the evidence. 
So just stellar dude. Um, Dennis again goes dormant for a time. This time his break lasts about four and a half years. In 1991, Dennis finds an older woman who was 62 and lived on her own. Uh, Dolores Davis was her name. She I lived love about that name, Dolores. Dolores. I actually also love the name Dolores. It's so sweet. I know it is so sweet. So Dolores Davis, who lived a mile and a half away from the Raider family and again sees her when he's on a drive around the house and sees her names her that's my next target completely random like the others and he also is like i need to start going after women who are older because they don't put up a fight like young women do well, yeah because so, he's getting old too he, yeah exactly so he's in his like mid actually now by this time in his uh, probably in his late 40s and he's like i know that i need to start picking on old women basically because they're not going to fight back the way that young women do awful so he had a very well thought out plan to get what would be his last victim on january 19th 1991 he was once again on a boy scout camp outing and he came up with an excuse to slip away so he this is very complicated so he drives his car from the camp to his parents' house Mm -hmm. to get changed out of his scout uniform and into his kill clothes. Okay. Is his parents not home? Lovely. I don't know. I don't, I have no idea. He then drives from his parents' house to a nearby Baptist church in Park City. He parks his car at the Baptist church and then walks the rest of the way to Dolores' house. He gets there, waits outside until he sees that she's asleep, breaks the glass door, at the back of the house with the cement block. And of course, as he breaks the door, she comes running out startled. He ties her up in the bedroom, strangles her to death. Dennis takes her body outside, puts her in the trunk of her car, drives her with her car to a lake near Park City, hides the body and evidence under some trees, drives her car back to her home, wipes it down, walks back to the church to get his car, Gets his car, goes back to Dolores's body, puts her car and puts her body in his car, and then dumps her body under a bridge. Question: Yeah, <laughs> why did he have to go to his parents' house to change? I think it was just a safe place for him to get changed. Bro, you could just change in your car. Well, and then but then he winds up getting changed in his car after he dumps her body. He winds up getting changed in his car back into a scout uniform. And then why do you just return to the campsite? I have that- no idea. That's, that's, that's. It is, it is not my job to figure out the way that this man's brain works. That, that is it's not sure. working. <laughs> it's not. It's not, not working. There's no. Or because where, apparently where he finally put her, placed her body by this bridge was super remote and desolate. And I guess he figured there's nobody out here. I can quickly get changed and then just go back instead of like re-retracing his steps. It almost sounds like he almost got caught a couple times in there. And that's why like his. Who knows? He's. What a fucking weirdo. Sorry. Not our place. Um, Oh, and then it gets worse. So he changes back into his... But wait, it gets worse. So he changes back into his scout uniform, goes back to the campsite. The next night, he drives back out to where he dumps Dolores' body to take pictures of it. Yeah. Because as if all of that wasn't bad enough. So because his MO had deviated so much in those last three victims, so you figure he was unable to bind... Mm-hmm. Uh, Vicky Weggerly, right? And then Dolores and Maureen were removed from the home. 
the cops didn't initially credit these killings with BTK. So they think he's been gone for years, 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 right? So they think that he's no longer a threat. So either he went to jail for some other unrelated crimes, or maybe he died. But the residents of Wichita and the nearby town start to relax. They're not realizing that Dennis Rader is living among them, like basically hiding in plain sight. So it's now 2004. The local newspaper runs a story. It is the 30th anniversary of the first murders of the Otero family. In the article in the newspaper, the reporter states that while the crimes of BTK remain unsolved, no one really remembers him. And this, of course, (laughs) and this, of course, pokes the sleeping bear triggers. Absolutely. So Dennis Rader wants to, as he always did, be in control of the story of BTK. So he gets pissed and he sends a letter to the Wichita Eagle, which is the paper that that article was run in. The return address of the letter he sent is under the name of Bill Thomas Kilman. B-T-K. In the envelope were photocopies of pictures that he took of the body of Vicki Weggerly. Police know that obviously the only the killer would have access to these kinds of photographs mm-hmm. from the crime scene. So BTK got his wish and he was back as the top news story. And not only we see the top news story in Wichita, but now he's finally national news, just as he always dreamed. So Ken Landweir, who is the lead homicide detective in Wichita, he calls on the public for help. He holds a press conference and is constantly updating the public on any and all communications from BTK. So he knows that by doing what BTK wants and publicizing his communications, he will keep talking. And if BTK BTK keeps talking, more than likely he'll fuck up. Oh, yeah. Which, spoiler alert, uh, he does. So... A series of communications begin between BTK and the Wichita Eagle and the local news station KAKE-TV or Cake TV. And that's what they call themselves. Cake TV, which I thought is very cute. K-A-K-E, Cake TV. So letters. He sends postcards. He actually left a cereal box by the side of the road that was all cut up because he's a cereal killer. (sighs) Fucking lame ass. Um, he's lame. Like what a cheese, like typical serial killer dad jokes are like the worst. Um, That's like, what that dad is. jokes are bad enough. Joke. And then add the fact that he's a serial killer into the mix. And it's just like 10 times worse. Um, he would buy dolls and dress up the dolls as his various victims and then send them to the That's news station. Creepy. Yeah. One of the dolls, he actually dressed like Josie Otero and he tied the doll to a piece of PB- PVC pipe. And sent it to the news station because she was hanging from the pipe in the basement. Yeah, depraved psychopath. Um, <clears throat> he signed all of the letters with a BTK symbol. I'm going to make sure that we share that on the Instagram so you guys can see what the uh, BTK symbol looks like. And he writes the letters, BTK, in a way that it looks like a stick figure, but he makes boobs out of the B. Again, seriously. It's unhinged. It's like, it's childish it's corny it's fucking nuts it's like it's depraved it's in fucking insane this guy's insane um in one of the letters and charles charles getting heated um in one of his letters he asks if he can <laughs> this here 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 it is 
Here's the fuck up. In one of his letters, he asks the cops if he can, if he sends a floppy disk to the police, would they be able to trace where it comes from? Oh, I remember this. So he asks, would you be able to trace where it comes from? And then he says, he asked the police to be honest. And then no, (laughs) no. So he instructs them. He goes, hey, if I can communicate via floppy disk and it cannot be um, traced, Place an ad in the classifieds of the Wichita Eagle with a coded message to me. And in a couple of weeks, I will send you back the floppy disk. So police are like, sure, BTK. So they place an ad in the classifieds. They address him as Rex, which is like, I guess, the agreed upon code between the two of them. And they state that it would be okay. And Dennis, as promised, sends the floppy disk. Um, but it was probably blah, 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 one blah, blah. of those ones that came in the giant pack. Probably. What a fucking douche. Oh, yes. Well, but that's not even what gone, the no, fucking idiot. Yeah. Is this going to be untraceable? Sure, Dennis. Um, okay. Okay. Would I tell you if it wasn't? Exactly, you dumbass. So Dennis believes him, and he believes that Ken Landwehr, the uh, head of homicide, enjoys playing this game with him. He thinks that this is like a joke, a game of cat and mouse. He thinks that the cops are in on it, and they're like, playing a fun game so like, he sends nah, the disc. we want to catch you bruh yeah he sends the disc and um with the promise that it will be untraceable but of course as soon as the disc arrives it's sent to forensic software detectives so they get into the data of the disc and it shows that it had been written from a computer located at christ lutheran church in park city kansas and the name of the computer was registered to a person named dennis they do a simple Google search, and on the website of the church, Dennis Rader is named as the congressional... Why do I always say congressional? Dennis Rader is named as the congregational president of the church. Like, what an idiot. Like, there's certain ways that he's he's very smart and calculated, and like, also, are you fucking smart dumb? Smart people are Yes, dumb. they are. You're right. You're right. They really, really are. Yeah. So police, if we remember, have DNA from the Otero oh, yeah. crime scene. And thankfully, they still have it in evidence. So they get a warrant for DNA, but not for Dennis's DNA. They get a warrant for his daughter Carrie's DNA through the medical office at the University of Kansas, where she had been a student. They were able to match the DNA from Carrie to the DNA that was in evidence from the Otero murders. DNA is fucking awesome. It is fucking awesome. On February 25th, 2005, the arrest of 59-year-old Dennis Rader took place. They pulled him over on his way home for lunch from work that afternoon and made the arrest right on the side of the road like the trash he is. Um, He looks up at the arresting detective and says, could you please tell my wife I won't be home for lunch? I assume you know the address. Fucking dick. So that evening, the news of the arrest of BTK was everywhere. Again, nationwide news. Uh, The families of the victims and the residents of Wichita feel this like huge weight lift off of their shoulders. Meanwhile, Dennis's daughter, Carrie, is starting to come to that slow realization that her father was indeed this monster who had done all of these heinous acts. She knew from the news growing up, like I had said that BTK, um, or I'm sorry, she had no, she had known from the news growing up that BTK strangled his victims. She also remembered from when she was six years old 
that Maureen Hedge, her neighbor, who she knew from her neighborhood, had been strangled to death. And when she kind of made that connection on her own, it just completely hit her, right? This gravity of of the double life that her father was leading completely threw her. So during the interrogation, he kind of like dances around for a while and never really admits anything until the police bring up the DNA evidence. And it was about the three hour mark into the interrogation that Dennis Rader finally says, I guess you guys got me. What else can I say? So the detective tells him, okay, well then say who you are. And he responds simply BTK. So as they're sitting there, can Ken Landweir presents the floppy disk and kind of puts it on the desk and like slides it over towards Dennis. And he gets like real pissed and he starts forcefully tapping on the disk and he looks at Ken and he's like, I got a question for you. Why did you lie to me? And Ken Landwehr's like, because I was trying to catch a murderer. <laughs> like, are you? Hello? Type of a thing. Like, hello. Can I get a stupid question for sure. 200? Sure, yes. No, that, that was a stupid question. Oh, yeah, question. like, seriously, like, what a moron. So, once he begins talking, he doesn't stop talking. He gave details of each and every single one of his crimes, like, minute to the second detail of everything that happened. He actually gets so brazen and bold and arrogant during the interrogation that when they took a little break, he takes a paper cup, fills it with water, and instead of writing his name on the side, he writes BTK on the cup. Dick. He spoke for over 30 hours. Are you fucking kidding me? 30 hours. At one time, like basically with just like bathroom and drink breaks in between 30 hours straight. Yes. The only regret that he showed was that there weren't more victims. He never really expressed any remorse. And he also told detectives that eventually they were going to discover what he called his mother load. When they found his many stashed items, they were all over the house. So he had like false bottoms in his drawers. He had false bottoms in the closet. He actually hid shit in the treehouse that he had built for his kids in the backyard. I'm sorry. His poor wife and his <laughs> poor children. Legit. Like, Legit. Could you imagine? Nope. I can't even imagine what those parents of the Boy Scouts. Oh, hell yeah. Were thinking. Yeah. Seriously. I trusted my kid with you. Yes. It's like, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. You, wait, what? Mm -hmm. I would have been, I would have sued the Boy Scout (laughs) Company of America or whatever. Boy Scout Company of America. I will. You let this asshat be. I'm going to steal you and I'm going to take all your patches. Oh my God. Biatch. Okay. Well, I'm not, I'm going to say this also. I don't really trust anybody who works for the church. Well, I mean. So, there's like half of them that I find kind of. Well, that's a different conversation for. Yeah. That's a different conversation for a different day and a completely different time. Yes. Yeah. That's a, that's a different podcast. So. The volume of the stuff that they found was astounding. And the stuff that they found was astounding. So there was evidence and items that he had kept from every single crime scene. There were journals, there were drawings, there were materials that he used to bind people with and Oh, the photographs. There were photographs, not only of his victims, but of Dennis himself bound and posed like one of his victims. He would wear women's clothing their undergarments that he stole from his victims. He would wear wigs. He would sometimes wear masks. And he would 
hang himself from trees. And there were even photos of himself partially buried in the ground. Can you find these photos? They're on uh, They're- Murderpedia. Oh, you really have his those photos? They're on Murderpedia. Like, I want to see this yeah. shit. Mm-hmm. Um, he would get, obviously, sexual pleasure out of binding, binding himself, and he would torture himself. It's autoerotic uh, no. pleasure. Yeah. So the day of his arrest over at good old cake TV, the weekend weather reporter tells his colleagues that he's a member of Christ Lutheran Church and that Dennis Rader had asked him to organize a tour at the studios. Turns out that only two months before he was arrested, Dennis Rader was at cake studios watching a newscast take place, taking photographs while the anchors were reporting on BTK. He was so obsessed with Cake TV, having been a viewer for basically his entire life, that his first public interview he gave to Larry Hatterberg, who was an anchor at Cake News. Like, he was obsessed with Cake News. I just love that their name is Cake. I know. Cake is great. Cake. I mean, actually, I don't really like Cake, but Cake News, I'm sure, is delightful. Mm-hmm. So his plea hearing is un- fucking believable and i highly recommend when you get a chance to watch clips from the testimony he gives so though dennis rader pleads guilty to all of the charges the judge still needs him to confess to his crimes basically in the court so he starts to talk about the murders just like very matter of fact and conversational like he's talking about his day i did this i did that Blah, blah, blah. And like the way that he's acting, he's like, hmm, so let me think. And like making mouth noises as he's thinking, like, hmm, like grumbling to himself, right? Like it's fucking crazy. So he begins to talk to the judge as well about the psychopathy of serial killers. He like basically gives him a lesson in serial killer one-on-one. This is how we think. This is why we do what we do. This is when we are uh, in our hunting stage of killing people. So like I said, different stages of killing. Then he starts talking again about factor X. Remember I told you about that before. That's the demon that lives inside of him. And, um, he explains to the judge what it feels like when demon X or when uh, factor X is there or whatever. His family did not go to his plea hearing, by the way. Oh, yeah. So just a little interesting tip. Yeah. Um, so at the sentencing, the DA puts together a incredibly comprehensive presentation about the horrific nature of the crimes, uh, compiles all the evidence talks a lot about what happened, again, his mental state, etc. And the surviving family members give victim impact statements that are unbelievable. I can't even imagine. And I, I Googled <laughs> victim impact statement BTK, and CNN has this transcript of that entire day. They have the court report transcript from that entire hearing. And it's fucking fascinating. So I recommend just for myself, because like I've told you guys millions of times before, to me, these stories are all about the victims. So if you want to learn a little bit more about the victims and the impact that they had on the lives of the people they left behind, I highly recommend it. But I do want to read this quote from Jeff Davis. He's the son of Dolores Davis, who was the final BTK victim. He says, for the last 5,326 days, I have wondered what it would be like to confront the walking cesspool that took my mother's life. If my focus were hatred, I would stare you down and call you a demon from hell who defiles this court. 
And that's the nice stuff that he wrote in his impact. It's in, it's incredibly moving and it's intense. So after all the victim impact statements, Dennis has the opportunity to make his own statement. And it's as if he is getting an award. Oh it's as God. if he's accepting an Oscar. He stands up and he's like, well, thank you. Well, first, I'd like to thank all the people that have helped me with this. And I want to thank the police department for all their hard work on this. And but he starts like thanking people like he's getting a fucking life achievement award. Again, crazy. As soon as he starts talking, though, the victim's family stand up. They walk out the door, which I love. Oh, yeah. So the judge sentences Dennis Rader for 10 life uh, consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. He is currently serving the rest of his pathetic life at the El Dorado Correctional Facility in El Dorado, Kansas. He just turned 76 on March 9th. The city of Wichita demolishes the Raider home in 2007 in order to try and erase the visual reminder of the monster that lived near them for so long. In the Netflix show Mindhunter, I just had to put this in here, so the Mindhunter, at the beginning of uh, beginning and end of each episode, starting with season one, episode one, a man playing Dennis Rader is portrayed in short clips on the show. So he's not part of the actual plot of the show, but they show him at the beginning and the end of the episodes. It's fascinating how they do it. Such a good fucking show. So... In the 2020 episode, they're interviewing his daughter, Carrie, and she's like, so I get this notification on my Netflix. You're a 93% match for somebody who would like Mindhunter. So she's like, cool, I'll watch it. So she turns it on and it's like the first scene of the first episode is this man portraying her father. And she said it resembled him so closely that she had to shut it off. She will. She can't watch it anymore because it's so it resembles him so much. And she's like, it really it fucked her up god that show was so good I'm so pissed that they that's not coming back it's fucked up um carrie has uh resumed contact with her father uh she began contacting him again in 2012 she decided it was time to let go of the anger because it was affecting her mental health so i just want to give one last quote from the 2020 episode this is a quote from detective timothy ralph and i thought it was a perfect way to end and kind of summarize the feelings of Dennis Rader. And the quote is, he is not some master criminal. He is not some piece of mythology. He is just a child killing piece of shit. (laughs) And that is a quote by detective Timothy Ralph. And, uh, I know that was long guys. I, um, I didn't want to cut out any of the information about the victims. I didn't want to leave out any of the victims. I felt like each of their stories deserved equal time to be told because even though the stories were similar because his MO only deviated slightly, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't shed light on what happened to each person because it doesn't diminish what happened. I didn't know any of those stories. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so there was 10 victims in all. The four Oteros and then six subsequent murders after that. Um, you know, thankfully, Catherine Bright's brother, Kevin, was able to get away. He was close to being an 11th victim or another victim, and he thankfully was not. So we, you know, are happy for that. Um, but I do, I recommend people looking for information about the survivors um, of BTK, the the people who are left behind from the victims, because they have a lot of really 
powerful and amazing stories. Like I said, there's a great uh, episode on BTK from Discovery Plus. That's actually an ID channel. Original. I'm now obsessed with Discovery Plus. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Oh, it's great. Um, so it's actually from the ID channel was the original person who who did it. And that one focuses more on the victims' families. And mm-hmm. they, they speak a lot in that one. And it's, it's fascinating. So, yeah, that is... Uh, that's the story of BTK. Good job. Thanks. I learned new things today. Yay. That's a heavy one. So I do. Yeah. I do apologize for that. It is. Yeah, it's a it's a heavy one. But um, I don't know. BTK always. That one always got me. So I thought it was important to to tell the story. So. But uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's it for this afternoon uh, or evening or, or morning. morning. Whenever you guys are listening to us, uh, we just appreciate you being here and, and hanging out with us today. Um, please go ahead and send any emails if you would like to, um, suggestions on stories that you would like for us to cover, um, stories that you have yourself that you would like for us to tell uh we could do that as well um or you know what just send an email and say hey hi i like when you say hey it's cool it's or send us pictures of your fur babies yeah we started i do like that <laughs> a lot never gonna be sad about that no um but yeah and of course as always find us on social media so on instagram we are at bed crime stories um twitter we are at bed crime stories and uh, the email is at bed or is bedcrimestoriespod at gmail.com. We are in the process of considering starting a TikTok. Tickety talk. Uh, the Tic Tacs. Um, I am not a TikToker. I don't understand the TikToks. Um, but anyway, thank you guys so much for spending your time with us. We appreciate every single one of you. We love every single one of you. Uh, tell a friend, rate, subscribe, like, leave a review, anything that you can do to spread the word about bed crime stories. We think that you're all pretty fucking groovy. Um, and we'll catch you all next week. Until next week, sweet, sweet dreams. dreams. Our theme song is the song Industrial Music Box by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Creativecommons.org backslash licenses backslash by backslash 3.0.